This week, on Myths and Legends, we're back in the Arthurian Legends, and we'll tag along with two knights of the round table as they take a road trip to the country of Strange Adventure, and you'll learn that if someone said they'd rather die than be with you, it's definitely the chivalrous thing to do to harass them constantly and follow them home. The creature this week is an alligator with no mouth and giant nostrils, and a thick tail to beat you to death for laughing at its giant nostrils. From Bardic, this is Myths and Legends, episode 100, Buddy System. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Well, it's here. Our 100th story on the podcast, and I can't believe it. We blew past 100 episodes last year, but since some tales are multiple parts, this makes for our 100th story. When we started all of this in spring 2015, I had absolutely no idea that nearly three years later, it would be my full-time job. We would have covered this many stories, and there wouldn't really be an end in sight. That is absolutely the case for the Arthurian legends. I've been mapping out the story for another project we're doing, and I came to realize that we have so far to go. Plus, we've already covered all the boring stuff, like Vortigern, Uther, and the early years of King Arthur's reign, where it's just a bunch of earls slugging it out, either for or against the new king. From here on out, we're deep into the Kingdom of Adventures, as it's called in the legends, where Arthur and his knights travel far and wide, embark on quests and fight, and sometimes spoon strange knights. It's either off-the-wall quests, or crushing tragedy, as the world implodes because of the secrets they keep from each other. So, yeah, buckle up. When we last left Arthur, his half-sister, Morgan Le Fay, had disappeared with the scabbard of Excalibur. She tossed it into a lake, essentially getting rid of it forever before vanishing into the wilderness. When we last left Morgan Le Fay's son, Yvain, he had kept her from killing his father, but he was also exiled by Arthur. In past episodes, I didn't really dive into why he was exiled, other than the fact that he was Morgan Le Fay's son and Arthur didn't trust him. Well, there's also another reason. Yeah, go ahead and put it on. Morgan wants a report on how good it looks, the messenger said, handing the jeweled mantle, basically a hood with a cape, to King Arthur. Arthur shook his head. No, jeweled mantles weren't really his thing, and as a minor counterpoint? Seriously? Was the messenger serious right now? Morgan had tried to kill him. Twice. And the last time Arthur tangled with the sister, she had her lover beat him within an inch of his life and then she'd robbed him in the hospital and thrown away the one thing that, according to prophecy, could avert disaster for his entire kingdom, so no thanks. He'd pass on the hood. The messenger tried again, saying that this was a peace offering, so how about Guinevere tries it on? You're right, it doesn't go with Arthur's eyes, but rest assured, it's a completely normal hood. No, no one is trying on the hood, and you can tell my sister. Arthur started, but Merlin cut him off. The aged wizard pulled him aside and whispered into his ear. Arthur smiled and nodded. Arthur walked back to the messenger, saying that if it was truly a harmless hood, she again insisted it was, well, then she should have no problem putting it on herself, Arthur stated, quite proud of his logic. He would call Guinevere, of course, but first, the messenger could put it on to show that it was indeed harmless. The messenger swallowed hard. Okay, 
Yeah, sure. Arthur blurted out that if it was a trap, she could just say so and leave with her life. But the messenger shook her head, clutching the mantle in her hands. The smile began to fade from Arthur's face as tears began to roll down the messenger's cheeks. As she lifted the mantle above her head, Arthur commanded her to stop, but she said that she could not. Arthur knew his sister. She had people everywhere, even in Camelot. She would know of the messenger's failure, of her betrayal, and Morgan neither forgave nor forgot. It was better this way. She dropped the mantle on her head and screamed. Her clothes and, where it was exposed, her skin burst into flames. Arthur commanded his knights to get it off of her, and they did. But the magic in the hood was too powerful. The messenger screamed for as long as she was able, before dropping to the floor and shriveling into a foul-smelling ball. Morgan's fire was relentless and didn't stop until the messenger was bones and ash. The servants collected those still-smoking bones and ash, and Arthur glowered at the darkened stain on the stone floor. He thought about the woman's final words. Arthur knew Morgan still had spies in Camelot, and there were two people with an undeniable link to his sister, King Urien, her husband, and Sir Yvaine, her son. King Urien had been harmed by Morgan almost as much as Arthur, but Sir Yvaine? Sir Yvaine had caught her in the process of trying to murder his father, and yet he had let her go. At this point, any suspicion that someone was working with Morgan had to be taken seriously. He summoned Yvaine to his court. Anyone who banishes my cousin also banishes me, Sir Gawain declared to King Arthur. Arthur laughed. I mean, yeah, he's technically your cousin, but these are the Arthurian legends. We're all cousins, Gawain. I mean, I'm your uncle. Oh, 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 you're serious. Okay, walk out that door, Gawain, and you're no longer a knight of the... Mm. Will you get on that horse and you can get... Mm. Okay, will you ride out of the kingdom? Mm. Arthur turned to Merlin. He's gone, isn't he? Merlin nodded. All right, whatever, Arthur said. We'll just say he went on a super secret quest to the castle of... Vile... Perilous... Adventure... That sounds like something, right? That sounds real. Merlin shrugged. He didn't care about these knights and their drama. Morgan Le Fay had spread the word far and wide to all the teenage girls interested in learning magic that Merlin was not the best school in town. So, he was in a pretty bad mood. Beyond the borders of the kingdom, Yvain was sad that he had been banished, though he was honored that the greatest knight in the world, Gawain, had decided to join him. Gawain, who was kind of tired of hearing about how awesome it was that he was Gawain, was thankful when he heard something from the clearing up ahead. It was the sound of... spitting. The pair of knights rode into the clearing to see twelve women, all dressed in white and dancing. They had found a shield hanging on a tree, and they were all taking turns spitting on that shield. The women stopped spitting when they saw the knights, and the pair dismounted. Hi, how can we help you? The women asked. I see that you're spitting on a shield, Gawain said, confused. Yeah, what, people can't spit on shields? Well, they can, but why? Gawain replied. Hey, I have a question, Yvain butted in. Oh, by the way, nice to meet you. Knight, 
Former Knight of the Roundtable. I'm in between opportunities right now. Anyway, what do you do when you run out of spit? I mean, people only have so much. We throw mud at the shield, drink some water, and wait for more spit, one of the women answered. Oh, okay, that makes sense, said Givain, nodding. Also, why are you doing this? The woman sighed. If it would get the pair to leave, she would tell them. It was because the knight who owned the shield hated all women. In fact, he was terrible to women. Yvain laughed. It's the early Middle Ages. That was a really low bar. Gawain interjected a bit and asked how a man could hate all women. Come on, that was a hefty allegation. Were the women sure they weren't mistaken? The women stared back, unamused. Yvain cleared his throat and asked what the knight's name was. They said he was Sir Marhas, the son of the King of Ireland. Yvain laughed at the name. Marhas, he knew Marhas. Marhas was good people. He wasn't terrible to women. A woman in front rolled her eyes. Had Yvain ever seen him around women? Yvain thought a moment. No. Was Yvain a woman? <laughs> Yvain chuckled. No. Okay, so 12 women were obviously lying because Yvain had some notion about Marhas being, quote, good people. Gawain stepped in. He was pretty confident that he'd figured out what was going on here. These 12 women, with their detailed accusations of Marhas being terrible to women, versus Sir Yvain's vague assertion that he was, quote, good people. It was obvious. These women were lying. Yvain declared that he would not stand for a knight's shield to be dishonored. So he was going to find Marhas, who had to be close by and tattle on these women. Gawain took a step forward and said that if the shield wasn't clean by the time they returned, he and Yvain weren't responsible for what would happen to them. Yvain shot the group a look that said, yeah, what he said, before the pair rode off. Or started to, that is. It was then that they heard a horse galloping on the road up ahead. The woman looked to the forest with a time to go face, got in their last few spits on the shield, and booked it into the woods. Marhas, the owner of the shield and the man who was terrible to women, was on his way. Gawain waited for the surely honorable Sir Marhas to arrive, while Yvain curiously followed the women. Hey, Big G, did you know that there's a castle right there? All the women fled into it. Yvain notified Gawain as Marhas burst into the clearing. He saw his shield covered in spit and mud and glared at Gawain. Gawain informed the fellow knight that a dozen women had been defacing his shield and the man looked at Gawain in disbelief. And Gawain had let it happen. Gawain was about to defend himself when Yvain returned, bursting through the trees opposite Marhas. Hey buddy, nice to see you. Hey, sorry about your shield, but heads up. Some guy's charging here on a horse. And man, he does not look happy. Marhas groaned and picked up the shield from the tree, flinging mud and spit from it, just in time to see a knight from the castle crash into the clearing. Sir Marhas threw down his visor and sped off toward the knight. Seconds later, the knight was on the ground, quickly dying from a broken neck after Sir Marhas had struck him with such force that he had broken the horse's back as well. Clearing up all manner of blood, spit, and mud from his shield, Marhas asked Gawain and Yvain what they were doing here. Yvain explained that they were just two normal knights out looking for adventures, in good standing with King Arthur and definitely not banished forever. How about you? The knight rolled his eyes. He said he didn't care. He said if he ever saw the pair again, he would be the last thing they saw. And with that, he rode off. Gawain climbed back into his horse, but Yvain held up his hands. What was he doing? Gawain shot his friend a confused look. His honor demanded that the man answer for that insult. Duh. Yvain protested again. But don't, I mean, you just saw what happened, right? 
The guy was the strongest knight Yvain had ever met. I mean, look what he did to that horse. Gawain looked at the dead body on his left, and the horse with a broken back slowly dying on his right. He narrowed his eyes. Yvain could see that nothing was going to deter his buddy slash idol from pursuing Marhas, so Yvain announced that he would fight him first. If he won, fantastic. If he lost, at least he would weaken the knight a bit. Loosen up that fully armored and sword-wielding jar of pickles. Gawain shrugged. Sure. What were friends for? Ten minutes later, Yvain was on the ground, yielding to the knight. Gawain, now tasked with defending his own honor and avenging Yvain's defeat, dropped the visor to his own helmet and started in on Marhas. Now, I don't know if I've talked about this in the show, but knight fights are not as epic as they sound. Once knight is unhorsed, if he survives that, it's usually just two guys in full armor slugging it out until one gets tired and yields. They're probably in danger, but not as much as you'd think for people hitting each other with swords. It's like two guys in fireproof suits hitting each other with torches. They'll come out of it tired and bruised, but they'll probably live. And that's what happened with Marhas and Gawain. Gawain's lance broke, and he fell off his horse. And over the course of the fight, Marhas gained the upper hand, while Gawain grew more and more fatigued. Marhas could see that he was probably going to win eventually, but it would be a long, exhausting fight until then. Besides, he was impressed by how long Gawain was fighting. Casually, he floated the idea of, hey, how about I stop attacking and you stop fighting and we become best friends? Compared to several more hours of being smacked around by a stranger's sword, that sounded pretty good. So Gawain agreed, and yes, the trio became best friends. Now, a quick note, I read various summaries and different versions alongside the works to make sure I'm getting it right. And one I read talked about the 12 women in white as enchantresses, falsely accusing Marhas of being terrible to women. Other than Gawain's judgment call on Marhas, and Marhas himself saying, no, those women are lying, they just hate me because I'm a strong man, we don't really get much in the way of exoneration from Marhas. I'm, personally, more liable to believe the 12 women accusing him than Yvain's assertion that he's a good guy. Right before the quote-unquote good guy attacks Yvain, but I'm not Gawain, the, well, I guess now the second best knight in the world. So, what do I know? We'll follow the knights as they enter the country of strange adventures. But that will be right after this. Alright, now back to the show. Their mini-fight club ended, the new best friends trio went to a nearby priory to recoup after their long days. In those days, priories, abbeys, and monasteries were happy to take in and heal some honorable knights. And Marhas. They stayed there and healed, and then rode off, looking for some more adventures. They were pretty sure about where they were going, too. They passed seven days through the forest before reaching the border of, quote, the country of strange adventures, which... If you're looking for some adventures, you probably can't go wrong with a country of strange adventures. And just to drive the point home, Marhas revealed that only one knight had found the land, since it had been christened the country of strange adventures. And he had found, you'll never guess, strange adventures. The trio rode for another few days, before the bubbling of a fountain filled the air. Thinking that the country of strange adventures was kind of overselling itself with the name, the three parted the trees to find three women standing by a fountain. They were three women of very different ages. The eldest was at least 60 years old, 
and had stark white hair and a gold circlet on her head. The next was a woman of 30, also wearing a circlet of gold, and the youngest was a girl of 15, wearing a garland of flowers. The three knights looked at each other. They hadn't seen any signs of civilization for days. What were these women doing out here, without horses, supplies, anything? The eldest spoke first. She announced that they were in the country of strange adventures, the totally weird place full of crazy stuff. The three knights shrugged. They guessed. It was a pretty standard mysterious forest. But what about the three women standing by a fountain? The elderly woman said. That was weird, right? Yvain shook his head this time. He didn't know what it was, but he had the feeling that he was going to have much stranger experiences by a fountain someday. The elderly woman interrupted him, saying the strangeness they had seen so far was nothing compared to the quest these three women offered. There were three women and three men, and the road forked in three directions from this point on. If they wanted to continue on in the country of strange adventures, each knight must choose a woman to ride with him, and he must listen to her advice. On this day, 12 months from now, and if they survived the journey, the trio would meet back here. The three men looked at each other and shrugged. They literally had nothing better going on. And I'm using that word correctly. They had been riding aimlessly since they had picked up Marhas. The offer of a quest from three women was the only offer they had on the table. So they took it. Yvain was the first to step forward. He said that he knew he was the youngest and weakest of the three knights. So he would take the elderly woman with him because he needed all the experience and help he could get. And she looked very, very old. Thank you, the elderly woman said, mounting Yvain's horse. To be fair to Yvain, in the early Middle Ages, 60 plus was ancient. We don't have a ton of data on life expectancy in early medieval Great Britain, but 45 years old seems like a pretty solid estimate. Marhas, hater of women, asked the 30-year-old if she wanted to ride with him which meant Gawain was left with the 15-year-old, who he said he found very attractive. The three men kissed each other, wished each other the best on their strange adventure, and rode off in opposite directions at the fork in the road. Fight those guys, the 15-year-old girl said to Gawain. The pair had just chanced upon 10 knights fighting one knight. What? No. I don't even know them. I'm not fighting them. Gawain replied. Come on, you have to do what I say, the girl pressed. That's the deal. That's like, the whole deal. I didn't think it was a literal thing, Gawain replied. I'm not taking orders from some 15-year-old girl. What are you going to do about it? Let me off, the girl replied. What? Yeah, let me off. You failed. You failed the quest. Congratulations, you made it two days on a year-long quest the girl informed him as Gawain slowed to a stop. He shrugged and the girl slid off the horse. It was a weird situation anyway. They had stayed with an old knight in his manor in the country of strange adventures and asked if he had any strange adventures. He told them to just wait until tomorrow. There was this whole thing he would see. The next day, they noticed a much younger knight moping around the place and Gawain was about to ask him what was going on but found the man dressed for battle the sad knight mounted his horse and rode out. There, in the field, ten knights stood arrayed, and he sadly brought up his lance and began battle. He unhorsed them one by one, and then, instead of fighting them from atop his horse, got down to take them out on foot. Then, he pulled out his sword and looked to the forest. 
his shoulders slumped as he sat down. Is he crying? Gawain asked. Yeah, the old knight answered. It was then that the ten knights that he was fighting suspected that the knight in the fetal position, blubbering in his armor, might not be as big of a threat as they thought he was. They shrugged, brought out the rope, and hogtied the sad, sad knight. It was as they were fastening him to the underside of their horse that the 15-year-old girl had spoken up. Gawain had ignored her pleas to help and failed his quest. After she dismounted, Gawain saw what the poor knight had been looking at in the forest. From it strode a woman with a sneer on her face, flanked by two knights, one of which was a monstrous man who towered over the woman, and the other was a hideous dwarf who really liked to make everyone uncomfortable by not wearing his helmet to hide his face. They, however, saw the 15-year-old girl who had left Gawain, nodded to each other, and rode off after her. In seconds, Gawain heard the screams of the girl as the large knight scooped her up and put her in the saddle behind him. Oh, come on, seriously? Gawain remarked when he watched the girl being taken. It looked like he had to fight after all. He lowered his visor and sighed. When the knights who were hogtying the captured sad knight saw Gawain making for their friends, they blocked his path. Standing over ten guys, some dead, some pretending to be dead because they didn't want to fight Gawain anymore, Gawain looked for the girl and the two knights. But they were long gone, having disappeared during the fight. He cut the knight loose from the horse, and through the tears, the knight thanked him for what he did. Not that it mattered anyway. Gawain told him that he had failed a quest and mildly risked his life to rescue the guy. What was the deal? As it turned out, the knight was named Pelus, and if that sounds familiar, it's because he was the son of Pelham, the knight we met a long time ago, who was stabbed in the groin by a holy relic, an act that threw Great Britain into decades of weird chaos and destruction and could only be remedied by obtaining the Holy Grail. Anyway, Pelus came from a long line of men tasked with defending the Holy Grail. And seeing as his dad had disappeared, his castle had been destroyed, and the girl had gone missing, he had some time on his hands. So he went to tournaments. Fighting was in his blood and that was evidenced by him besting 500 people at one tournament. It was also there that he saw the beautiful woman that had emerged from the forest. Her name was Eddard. Pellis saw her there, gave her a token of his affection, and announced that she would have his undying love. The issue? She didn't want his undying love. She made plans to travel home the following day, and he found her. She sat the night down and made it unavoidably clear. She said that she didn't love him, and she would never love him, even if he died for her. He took it surprisingly well, in that he barely heard it, and only registered it as a challenge. He promised, or threatened, to follow her into her country, and never leave her alone until she loved him. The writers, Mallory in particular, were not very forgiving to Eddard. They say that she's pretty, but not the fairest in the land, and the text scorns her for being too proud to accept Pellis's love. Instead of, you know, not being into the type of guy who would take clear and unequivocal rejection as a signal to follow you home. Eddard continued with the mixed signals when she fled from Pellis, shut herself up in her castle, and sent ten nights a day to fight him to get him to leave. 
and so Pella stayed in a priory not a half mile from the castle and wondered why Edward was playing very, 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 very hard to get. He fought her knights because eventually giving up to them was the only way to see her. And of course, he had to be captured by them. And the whole time she swore at him, rebuked him, told him not to come back, took his horse and saddle, and had her knights throw him out of the gate. Love was difficult sometimes. Gwen heard of Pellis's continued and persistent harassment of Eddard, and he felt bad. For Pellis. He could see how torn up the knight was about the woman. And he said that, even though he watched a 15-year-old get abducted not 10 minutes ago, he could play wingman to the sad knight. He would go talk to the woman Pellis loved, explain the situation, and finally actually help someone out in the time since leaving King Arthur's court. Gawain told Pellis to take off his armor. He had an idea. An hour later, Gawain rode to the gate of Eddard's castle, wearing Pellis' armor. The two knights at the wall took one look at the armor, and at the man approaching, and shook their heads in disappointment that he was back for more today. So they rode out to greet him. Come on, man, do you really want to do this again? The knight asked him. Gawain flipped his visor up. Do what again? The two knights were confused. He wasn't Pellis at all. Gawain shook his head. That really annoying guy? <laughs> yeah, I killed him. Before he died, crying, I might add, he mentioned something about your lady. The pair nodded. Gawain had no idea how grateful they were. That guy was not only really sad, but he was super dangerous and relentlessly creepy. They were just so happy they didn't need to send a dozen guys out to fight that night every morning. Gawain needed to meet their lady. She would be so happy. Three days later, Pellis had no sign from Gawain. Maybe riding to the castle wearing the armor of the man she hated had been a bad idea. Pellis thought that, by this point, Gawain would have returned with either news of failure, or that Eddard had accepted his creepy, creepy love, and that she would now be his wife. He hadn't expected silence. Worse, or better, probably better. Eddard hadn't sent ten knights to try to chase him off, and or steal his horse, for the past three days. Pellis thought for a moment. No. Something was wrong. Not violently rejecting him? That just wasn't like his Eddard. It was mid-morning, before he ventured a ride out to look on Eddard's castle. But then he saw something even stranger. It was open. It was welcoming. To Eddard's people, Pellis was dead. So no one thought much of it, when a knight rode through the gates of the castle. In the hustle and bustle of the courtyard, no one paid him much mind as he slipped from his horse and entered the tower. It was the last room he found, the one that Gawain had entered and didn't leave for three straight days. Pellis took his sword from his belt. The man who had come to the castle only wanting to aid him had obviously fallen into danger and it was up to Pellis to rescue him. He forced open the door, and he was horrified by what he saw. The room Gawain had entered and hadn't left for three days was Eddard's bedroom. He saw the woman he loved, the one he had very valiantly followed home and whose wishes he had respectfully declined to respect, asleep in bed, 
next to Gawain. Pellis howled in pain and dropped to his knees, awakening the couple. Edward was shocked and a little horrified that Pellis was in her bedroom. Gawain sat up and smiled awkwardly. Oh, hey, Pellis. I meant to send you a message. So, I think I get the feeling that she might not be all that into you. Really? Is it because you guys have been sleeping together for three days straight? Yeah. Yeah, that might be it. That's where we're going to leave it for this week. One of the most surprising things I found from this podcast was that the Knights of the Round Table were anything but knights in shining armor. They aren't quite as nihilistic and brutal as knights from Game of Thrones, but they are first and foremost people, most of which are trying to do the right thing. But all of them make mistakes and fall victims to the same foibles that we all do. Anyway, next week, we'll finish up this short stint in the Arthurian Legends and see what happened with Yvain and Marhaus and their maidens. In lieu of other stuff, go check out Fictional. Season 2's here, and there's another episode this week. It's a Sherlock Holmes story that starts out with Watson going to an opium den. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts at apple.fictional.fm and everywhere else by going to fictional.fm or following the link in the show notes. The creature this time is the Dungavan Hooter. It's a fearsome critter from North America. The fearsome critters are creatures stemming from the stories that lumberjacks and other forest workers told each other in their camps to pass the time and scare each other. Some are scary, most are ridiculous. The Dungavin Hooter is a bit of both. Formerly common from Maine to Michigan, the Dungavin Hooter now only lives in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Unlike most of the fearsome critters, this one is odd, because it doesn't have a mouth. It looks like an alligator, but without the alligator's most prominent feature. It has two giant nostrils, though. You probably think you know where this is going, but you don't know where this is going. It doesn't just snort its prey whole. It's far, far too dignified for that. Like the alligator, it has a thick, powerful tail. And it hides behind wiffle bushes. Waiting for its quarry, it will first hit the person in the head, knocking them senseless and giving them enough time to go to work on the body. It will then stay there and beat the person to death, yes, but they won't stop there. They will beat and beat their food until they're able to eat it, making the pieces so small that they're gaseous. Then, the Dungavin Hooter will simply inhale their prey and continue on. It likes all sorts of people, it's not picky, but it really has a preference when it comes to smell. Basically, it's never safe to wander the woods drunk, and we've talked about that so many times, but anyone wandering the forests of the UP stinking of rum is a particular favorite of the Dungavin Hooter, and I am totally not judging but if you regularly have so much rum that the air freshener version of you is getting a mythological creature drunk, it might be time to pump the brakes a bit. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.